everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Right Words podcast. I am Hayley Walsh, your host, author of Lighthearted Fiction, coming to you from the beautiful city of Sydney. I can't believe this is episode six of the podcast. A couple of months ago, when I decided to start this humble little podcast, I had no idea just how much fun I was going to have chatting to all my guests. And the episode I bring you today is no different. Today, I'll be talking to my friend and fellow Aussie author, Nathan Best. We will be discussing all things publishing, distribution, marketing, finding your audience and building your author platform. If any of these issues have had you perplexed in the past, I hope the chat helps you decide which direction you want to take when publishing your book. So without further ado, let's go to my chat with Nathan. Welcome, Nathan. It is really awesome to finally have you with me on the podcast. No, thank you very much, Haley. It's very nice to be here as well. No problem. And uh, for anyone listening out there, we were just talking, um, Nathan is actually up in tropical North Queensland, and I am stuck here in Sydney, as you all know, in the six week of lockdown. Um, but sadly, you guys have had a couple of cases up there now, so you may go into lockdown as well. Is that right? I know. That's right. So we may be following you very shortly. So it's... Um... We've not been locked down for since I think Easter last year, so uh, it'll be yep. an interesting experience for us again. Yeah, absolutely. But look, enough talk about the um, the pandemic. <laughs> so I thought it might might be fun to tell the listeners how how we became mates and how we actually met. So myself yeah. and my partner went on a cruise. I think Nathan refreshed my memory. I think it was January two thousand eighteen. Uh, yes, it was actually. Yep. Yes, so we all embarked on a uh, South Pacific cruise, um, on a Royal Caribbean cruise, and I remember Chris and I going to dinner on the first night because we like the traditional dining, and nobody turned up, and we thought, oh, maybe we're not going to have any dinner mates on this cruise. Lo and behold, we rocked up on the second night, and who should rock up but Nathan and his partner, Steph, and we got chatting, and it was honestly like we'd known each other for years, wasn't it? We just had such a great Mm -hmm. night. It was. It was great. And then Nathan and I discovered that we both had a love of writing and that we were both working on books. So um, there was plenty to talk about after um, that. I think we were in the schooner bar at the time. We were. um, And I was coming back with drinks, I think, if I remember rightly. Yes. Which is a a pretty solid pattern for that cruise. Absolutely. um, It was a very nice discovery. It was good. Yeah, absolutely. So we've all become firm friends, which are lovely and kept in contact all this time. Um, yep. And Chris and I were lucky enough to come up to Cairns and catch up with you in, I think it was April last year, March or April last year. That yeah, would have been actually, March. Good. Yes, because we spent my birthday yeah, it probably with was you. March, actually. Yes. Yes, that's right, it was. That was and good. you bought and me a lovely chocolate cake, which was really nice. <laughs> that's right, very true. And uh, I think we actually caught up the year before that when we were out on another Royal Caribbean cruise on a basin of the team when we did New Zealand. You guys came out and saw us as well. That's right. When we were right. in Sydney, that was good. Actually, it's interesting oh, yeah. you mentioned that because I remember a certain lunch date in the city that day <laughs> and yep. I was talking about um, starting to query my bookmaking March and planning on publishing it. Mm-hmm. And I asked yep. you how many manuscripts you have lying around and I think you said, oh, I've got two or three lying around and, and yep. I sort of said, well, get them published. And lo and behold, we both published our first book in March last year. So we both published it our was. Yeah, first book at the same time. Was to say quite independently of each other. It just turned out to be. I think you. I think you beat me by a couple of days. That's yep. about it. Without risk, quite realizing it. Yeah, because so I remember sort of thinking, 
these books are just sitting around. You need to get them published, you know. So I'm glad yeah. that you that you finally did. Yeah, that's right. So it was just time, I think, time yeah. to get it get get it sorted and start um, pushing out some of my work. Absolutely. So now I'm going to ask you some questions that I ask everyone on the podcast. Yeah. Did you have a favourite book as a child, or a book um, that really got you into reading? So I suppose, like pretty well, everyone. I suppose I remember. I remember reading Golden Books when I was a child. Um, yep. But the first first novel I actually remember reading, and I think I was about seven years old, maybe eight, but I think it's about seven. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a World War Two based novel called Target Dame LeBenz by an author called Lawrence Cortese. Cortez, sorry. Yep. Cortese. Cortese, that's how he said his name. Um, published in 1980. I didn't realise he was actually a very prolific World War Two writer. Um, and he published all the way into probably the late 80s, I think, from the 70s. Um, and I actually still have this book to that day. I actually wow. have it in my bookcase. And so I, that's the oldest, well, not the oldest book I have. I've actually got a, a book from the 1700s um, wow. in my bookcase. Um, but that's the, actually the, the first novel I actually recall reading, and it more than likely probably was at that age. Um, and I actually still remember the essence of the story, and I have not read that book again. It just it just carries around with me everywhere as like a little keepsake, I suppose, and a memento. Wow! Um, so every time I see it, I look at it and I remember that you know that sort of same experience from when I was a child. So it is quite sort of quite nice. So I actually don't need to read it again, you know. So I, I suppose I've kept that same same memory from as a child's memory, you know. So um, so it's quite good. Yeah, absolutely. Because I did send you some questions to um, answer before we had a chat tonight, yeah. and you were telling me that based on that book, you actually wrote your own first book at age seven. Based on that and I book, remember it very well. Yeah, which yeah. is probably, in nowadays probably called plagiarism. I'm pretty <laughs> sure it wasn't much far off it, but um, it was very short. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be much more than a couple of pages of very large childish writing. Yes. But I remember that I remember that the the the, uh, the title was called Target Five Hundred Fifty Thousand Tons was the was the actual novel's name, yeah. um, and I can't tell you where a seven year old came up with that idea at all. But I remember sitting at a table we were living at a little place called Tully in North Queensland, um, at a table, and actually writing it in those big old school you know writing pads you used to get in Queensland. Um, and yeah, just sitting down and deciding I was going to write a novel because I'd read this one. Um, Very and good. I still actually remember sitting there doing it. So it's actually still a quite, it's a nice memory. Um, and I have been writing for a very long time, which is, makes that nearly 40 years, a bit over 40 years yep. of writing something at some stage. Well, you're showing your age now, aren't you, like all of us? Certainly, yeah. I don't mind. Age doesn't faze me. So fast forward all these 40-odd years. So you've now yeah. published three books and with two more mm-hmm. on the way. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I published uh, independently published three books last year, um, Burn September, Zara Creek and Raven's Eye, mm-hmm. um, from sort of March to August last year. Um, and then because obviously during those sort of, I suppose, four years, I've written all up about eight novels in reality. Um, so... And those sort of three that I sort of have published already, I'd written those quite a while ago. I just redrafted them and got them sort of into a more publishable format and independently did them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was just going to sort of grab old manuscripts and really just redraft them and move out. And then I came up with a new idea for a series, which is the Damien Hunter series. So I wrote um, two of those books this year um, for to support that series. So um, Okay. Yeah, so... 
Yeah, so it's actually quite good. I, independent publishing doesn't really phase me. I, I actually hybrid publish. Yep. Um, so for the my two new ones in the Damien Hudson series, I'll actually chase the publisher for that um, because I believe it's got legs to be published through a traditional publishing house. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'll chase. So that'll be a longer experience, obviously, and, and you know, as opposed to independent publishing, which is quicker. Yeah, I've got a lot of questions to ask you in regard to, you know, self-publishing, hybrid publishing and the decisions that we all make yeah. as authors. But going yeah, back definitely. to the three books that you've got published, um, mm-hmm. can you tell the listeners a little bit more about each of their plot or just give a quick summary of each of the three books? Yeah, sure. So so as an author, I write um, young, adult, young adult fiction, adult fiction, um, pretty well sitting nice and firmly in the action adventure genre. Um, so my first two novels are young adult fiction. So Burnt September is my first novel. Mm-hmm. Um, that's quite pegged at a lower, the lower teen level. Zara Creek is pegged at the higher teen level, and Raven's Eye is very much an adult novel by quite a long way. Yes. Um, so uh, it's not to be read by children, but um, in order to want to have some nightmares. But uh, so Burnt September, which actually is one of my favourite novels that I wrote quite a while ago. Um, and so that is period piece. So it's set in 1960s Northern Territory because um, I used to live in the Northern Territory, so I know it very well. Mm-hmm. And basically, what it does is it, it follows a group, a group of um, four mates um, who uh, basically spend most of their time adventuring through the 1960s bush of the Northern Territory. So um, it looks at their group dynamics, um, and basically, then. Um, they find a, uh, an old aircraft from World War II um, and the pilot is actually still around. He's actually been living there since, you know, the war ended where, when he crashed in about 1943. So, um, and then what it does, so Burn September then explores the group dynamic between the teenagers as they all have different opinions on what they should do with him, all the way taking it to the climax at the end. So um, it's a quite an enjoyable little read, that one. So um, I guess it focuses a lot on, on friendships and that they had to learn to work together yeah. and, and make decisions. Yeah, and, okay. And the stresses of friends who do not agree. Yeah. Um, even at that young age, you know, there will be, as teenagers, as we know, you become highly opinionated. Um, yes. And what you, what you believe is what you believe, um, regardless of what your friends and mates believe. So, so it looks all that, which is quite good. Um, Fantastic. Very strong male role model um, and lead character, which is actually – a very large trait of my writing. I use very strong male lead because, well, I suppose it's a reflection of me. Yes. Um, so Zara Creek uh, is, again, another period press um, set in 1922 in uh, far northern Queensland at a little place called Zara Creek, which is actually a real place. Um, looks nothing like it is in the novel, but I actually got the name from a street song for that creek when I drove past it once many, many years ago. Yes, um, I, saw, I saw your picture on Facebook. You did post a picture yeah, with a sign, which was would. very cool. Yeah, I know. It was actually quite cool to drive past and take the photo. So um, so it centres around the main character, whose name is Charlie. Um, so his father is killed during World War One. So he then has to run the farm with his mother. Um, and it really centres around that he loves to go fishing and stuff like that. And he goes, went for went fishing during a big storm and he witnessed a murder on a bridge, which is just around from, just around from the farm. And so the murderer actually saw him and chased him out, but Charlie got away, got home. It was very nice. Um, but then his mother hires the same murderer on as a farmhand. Um, so, and the murderer recognises Charlie. So what it does is wow. it focuses around the stress between the mother and son relationship. 
because uh, she can't finish wrong. Obviously, he knows he's a murderer. Um, and the fact, you know, the struggles of trying to run a, ca- a cane farm in the 1920s as a female as well, um, which is not, which is, which was done, but it's not really was not really acceptable in those days. So explores yeah. a little bit of that as well, um, and sort of moves forwards to where the murderer then just basically comes out and goes, yeah, it's me, and then goes to the climax at the end where. Um, which ends up the climax of the of the novel is on the same bridge, so basically the novel brings itself all the way around to the ending at the bridge again, which wow. is Charlie saves the day. Okay, um, that's quite good. Uh, quite enjoyable read that one as well. Um, and then there's Raven's Eye. So Raven's Eye, very adult. Um, so it's military science fiction. It's it's a little bit hard to find a slot for that one, but military science fiction is about right. Um, very action orientated, very fast paced. Um, and basically it centers around, um, genetically modified warriors or soldiers, whatever you'd like to call them. Um, uh, they've actually been accidentally released in an accident on an island, um, which sounds like about a 1960s sci-fi movie realistically, but, and then basically they're programmed to kill people on site. So what it then explores is I have five um, five different storylines, which all blend into a single storyline at the end of the novel. Um, it explores those five individuals or little groups of people trying to survive through a single night to be escaped from the island before it's wiped out and the rest of the military comes in and, and destroys the island. So um, very fast-paced, quite bloodthirsty, lots yep. of people, you know, sort of getting killed, which is just the nature of that beast of, of story. Um, different format. We had uh, some other first two novels because that's actually all. Eye is written in the format I prefer, um, which is low chapterization and high scene breaking. Yep. Um, because I use that to speed the um, the action through. Because I am literally an action writer. Yeah. Um, so everything's very very fast. So that's those three. So that's yep. uh, Ben September, Krizar Creek, and Raven's Eye. Yeah. And a little bit about um, the two that you're working on at the moment. Yeah, so I'd like to hear something um, about that. Yeah, so that's part of the Damien Hunter series. Um, so I write standalone individual books, um, but often have common characters. Like in all of my books, there is a single common character, always. Um, so, um, and then it's just a bit character that I throw in because it's, that's what I can do because I'm the author and I'm allowed to do that. That's um, right, you are, absolutely. So, that's exactly right. I can do whatever I want. Um, and put in there whatever I feel like having as well. If I like something shiny, I'll just put that in there. Um, so the Damien Hunter series is very action-based, um, centres around Damien Hunter, who's um, ex-Royal Australian Air Force, Special Forces, um, in the initial novel, which is called Battleborn, and that really sets the whole pace set in Afghanistan for the entire series that comes out of it. So it is the only novel of the series that is literally based in war um, because it has to set the character up for the rest of the novel. So there's currently um, seven planned novels and I could pretty well take it up to 10 if I wish. Um, and I've pretty well skeleton written the skeleton for about the first five. That sounds um, like a so lot of work, Nathan. I'm impressed. That sounds like a lot of work. It's a huge amount of work. It's very enjoyable. Um, mm. So Battleborn's about 85,000 words. Um, Ghost in the Fog, which is a second one I've also written, that's 95,000 words. Um, I'm a very fast writer, as you know, Hayley. Um, I do. So, Unlike me. But, I'm, yeah, I'm a, but, it's true, but I'm also a very heavy planner. 
Yes. So I plan and research very, very heavily for the first two months prior to writing yes. anything. And you know that um, I'm the opposite. I'm a full panster completely. all the way. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. So I cannot write unless it's fully planned or I'm listening to heavy metal. I have to do all of those things. And I plan it all the way through to scene plans and everything before I even begin to write. Um, right. So that actually helps with my speed, you know, because it's already written for me. They're sort of in front of me and I just fill in the blanks. It's how I've always written. Uh, it works very well for me. So, but what also the Damien Hunter series does, even though it is action-based, it explores the mental health of veterans um, because he leaves the military in the second book. Well, he's actually not in the military. He's actually a contractor or mercenary, depending where you would like to be um, on that fence. Um, so, and then explores him dealing with his mental health and mm. still trying to function and basically and still be a professional. Um, yeah. And that wanders all the way through. And I've actually already fleshed out the final novel in the series, which is often my way, um, where he basically recovers from, you know, well, not so much recovers from, but learns to deal with his um, his mental health. So, but he yeah. goes back in the game, comes out of the game. It's all action-based, um, very, very fast, very, very fast-flowing action. Um, yeah. It also sounds like it addresses problem. some important issues too, which is fantastic. Very much fun. Yeah, because I have a lot of, obviously, I am still military. Yes. Um, a reserve these days. So I have a lot of friends, obviously, who suffer mental health issues. Um, so, yeah, so, and I have to work on those series, I have to have advisors because I've never been special forces. So I actually have four special forces advisors who help, help me out with accuracy because I'm very big on accuracy. So I do lots of research. Yeah. Um, but there's bits that I just cannot research, like what it really is like uh, in the field. And they, they give that to me. Um, so I sit there, have a conversation, and they describe it all to me. Um, and then I put that authenticity into my into my books as well. So, um, so Battleborn is just returning from my beta readers now. Um, they'll have six beta readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of them, three of them, have got back to me. They're very pleased with it. They want a bit of change at the start. Um, easy enough to do because often my staff can be a bit clunky initially, um, okay. and just needs a slight rearrangement, and then it's fine. But they're very happy with the whole thing. So, so that's very good. Um, and I've Excellent. just got to wait for the other three to get back to me, and then I'll start looking for a publisher for Battleborn. So I quite like it. It's very good. It's a, it's a nice novel. It's very, very fast-paced. Yeah, because you write. actually answered one of the questions I was going to ask you. Obviously, I know that you've got a military background. So, yeah. you know, how much of your, of your books are inspired by your own work? So, obviously, quite a lot. Pretty well. So, I've always sort of lived my life that basically on the sum of my experiences. So, I spent my entire life finding experiences to fill in any gap that I ever had. So um, if I ever need to know how to, and if I ever have a character who parachutes, I've already parachuted or dived or like done lots and lots of adventure and sort of action-based things. So, um, you know, I've been in the Middle East. I've been around a lot. Um, I've traveled all around the world, you know, lots of things like that. So got myself in lots of trouble, got myself out there out of lots of trouble. Yes. Um, I remember you had some so, wonderful stories on the cruise and kept Chris and I very well entertained. <laughs> very <dinner>. much <laughs> so. Um, so, yes, and all of glasses of red wine, obviously. And, um, oh, yes. It, uh, for, for the listeners out there, Nathan is referring yeah. to one night at dinner where he reached for the wine list and subsequently poured a glass of red wine all the front, all, the, all down the front of Chris's brand new Western Sydney Giants um, jersey. Did, and quite wrecked it. Yes, so. <laughs> and you know we never did get the stain out, but that's okay. We'll forgive you. <laughs> no, no, it's like a uh, it's like a memento now from the cruise. Absolutely, <laughs> could be a it could become a collector's item, you know, in the day. 
So, um, but uh, yeah, so basically, I realistically write a lot from my own experiences. Every single novel has part of me in it, which is that's pretty standard, really. I think. Yeah, um, I think as authors, we all throw something of ourselves into the story. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. It makes it interesting. You know, yeah. and it helps, I think, with the bond of the story. Because if you don't bond with the story, then you're probably not really writing it. Absolutely. Um, you're just going yeah. through the motions. So, um, but yeah, yeah I, li- I literally roll. When I write, it's like a movie screen inside my head. And that's yep. how I write. And you see the action the playing out in front of you, yeah. like, you like you're watching it on the screen. Yeah, very much so. And that's how, I, that's how it appears in my head. And that's how it goes on the, onto the files. I'll be onto the computer these days because I'm no longer longhand. Yep. I long-headed my first novel, and that took quite a long time. Um, so my first novel, which I wrote in 1999, um, mm-hmm. that was about 80, 85,000 words or something like that. Um, I've never published that one, and I don't know whether I ever will, but, you know, you've got to practice. Um, I actually long-handed that. And I'm also a very heavy stats keeper. Stats actually drive me, so I actually know how many pages I wrote a day. And, in fact, I used 50 pens. And I know what I ate and I drank during wow. the writing of it. I know what I listened to. And I do that for every single book. So I record all that. I actually enjoy going back and going, oh, that's right. I wrote this to whatever music or whatever yep. was happening at the time. You know, so. It's fascinating it's, uh, to talk to other authors, Nathan, who's, whose mind works completely different to mine. You know, like my my mind is some sort of organized chaos but somehow the book gets down in the end i don't know how i do it but yeah. very very different it's interesting how we're all very different aren't we how we work very much so like another friend of mine is a um, author he writes non-fiction um he writes in massive peaks and massive troughs whereas i write every single day you know when i'm when i'm writing a novel i write a minimum two thousand words a day which is my minimum minimum right and i'll just write it Whereas wow. he'll write, he'll write ten thousand words in one day, and then not write for four weeks. Yep. And then he'll have another day or two where he peaks again, and then he doesn't write at all. Yeah. So I have to say, really, I'm really exactly like your friend. I'm exactly the same. Yep. Peaks and troughs, definitely. Yeah. Whereas yep. I, can't, I don't, I can't, I don't think you're able to write like that. But it's just, it's, we're all different, very much. So that's what makes writing very, very interesting. <clears throat> and Absolutely. finding out how the author writes is very interesting. I've, I've always been very interested in how well other authors write. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I have to ask you as well, um, you're obviously a big history buff and a big fan of history because that features heavily in your books as well. Yep, definitely. Was that one of your favourite subjects at school? It was. I sort of did. I did, when I was in high school, I did ancient history, which I very much enjoyed. Um, didn't do modern history because I didn't really enjoy that as much. So, um, And then obviously joined the military. I sort of picked up a high level of military history. Um, but pretty well, I have a pretty vor- voracious appetite for historical everything. Um, so I, my, our bookcases are full, because we have four or five bookcases, um, are full of well, pretty well textbooks. Um, and, you know, one's dedicated to sort of more fiction stuff. But, um, and it's all about history. Yeah. You know, because that's where everything comes from. It's where, you know, that the old cliche, you learn from the past. So that's where knowledge comes from. Absolutely. Uh, and because I'm such a heavy researcher, you always look backwards to research. And then obviously if I'm writing something specific, so when I wrote Raven's Eye, I look for things that were in the future as well. Like things that are just being invented now or being looked at now. And then I use that little bit, te- a little bit of technology or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm always researching, which obviously, you know, brushes me through history quite heavily. Yeah, fantastic. 
So moving on to, you know, uh, marketing and and publishing and Mm -hmm. um, basically trying to sell your book. I mean, I think you would agree that one of the best things we can do as an author in order to sell our books is build our author platform. And social media is a great way to do that. But it's interesting um, when I sent you some questions, you said that you like Facebook and Instagram, whereas I actually yep. prefer Twitter. So, yep. so why is it that you prefer, why has Facebook and Instagram been more beneficial for you? Because uh, it's actually sold me books, which is well, probably yeah, that's, the best way to look <laughs> there at you it. Go. Um, whereas Twitter has, Twitter, although it is a valuable writer's community and sort of resource, um, that hasn't translated into any credible sales that I can actually work out. So it's a different style platform. So um, even though I'm more than happy to interact with other authors, I actually don't do it very often, mm. um, which is a bit strange, I know, but I'm, that's just the way I work. Um, so, uh, and I found that whenever I put out on Twitter that say my book was free, I would sell units or, yes. you know, units would be taken up. But if I didn't, there'd be no units taken up. Yep. So to me, that wasn't very usable. Um, whereas I do the same thing on Facebook and I move units for sale and Instagram's the same. So um, that's why I sort of look at them both. And for whatever reason, either it's just the people who follow me on Facebook and Instagram, um, it could just be those other people who buy my books, you know, basically. Um, yeah. Whereas Twitter is more community-based where then, you know, my books are not for them. So uh, so that's why I rarely, rarely put anything on Twitter. I do look at Twitter, um, yeah. but I rarely ever post Facebook. Um, I do post and Instagram I do as well. And Instagram's, I suppose, easy because it's just really a picture with a smaller blurb to it, which is sort of very good, good as well. Yeah. Um, because through my sort of Instagram my page, I sort of share a bit of my, you know, sort of not sitting at a computer life as well, although there is photos of that as well. Um, you know, so there is, you know, photos of me actually doing the things that I like to do, which gives me inspiration for the things I write. Yeah, it's interesting. Easier, you, easier yeah. to share. It's interesting you say that because a lot of people will say, um, you know, if you've got an author social media page to keep it strictly about your writing. But then again, on the other side of the coin, I think sometimes that's not true because your readers want to get to know you, don't they, as a person. Yeah. So I think it's important think so, that you do put other things on there as well. Yeah, do you I think agree? So. So, yeah, like Facebook, I have just purely for author and Twitter as well. But Instagram, I don't. So I use that as a hybrid. Um, so... That's basically, I suppose, showcasing my author side, but also what makes up my author side. You know, I'm the, you know, the experiences I have, which is how I come up with ideas and things. So, uh, where I find them as well. You know? Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, so, and Instagram is very easy for that. Um, yeah. So, but I also use my personal professional networks um, very heavily to sell novels. So, uh, and a lot of those are actually sold in hard copy. So I yeah. do hard copy or, or soft copy, depending. Um, so what I found is my actual personal and professional networks have been invaluable um, because people are just interested. Because a lot of, say, my even depending whichever network is, they all often know that I've had a pretty adventurous life and done lots of different things. Yeah. So when they know that I write sort of that adventure novel or an action novel, they're interested to see how that, so I suppose, translates. Um and you get a, a more a different style of support as well. So you get a bit, a bit more of a depth um, yeah. where they want to support you forwards as an author, um, which is very nice. 
Well, I need um, to ask your advice then, Nathan, because I yeah. I always feel like I'm being pushy if I was to say, you know, hey, I'm an author, here's my card, or I write books, or <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I'm obviously yeah. maybe I'm very boring compared to you, and my life's been very boring because I <laughs> I find that selling, you know, through personal networks, um, I find that very hard and I haven't been very successful in that. So yeah, any advice, even listeners out there who might be struggling like me, have you got any tips or advice on how to approach that that type of thing? Because I uh, find well, it really hard. What, yeah, well, what I normally do is I, it just comes up in conversation. And it is, there is no sell and there is no, I don't, I don't attempt to sell any of my books to anybody at mm. all. Um, by, I just generate the interest in it and then they want to buy it from me. Um, as opposed to saying, I've got a book, I think you should buy it. Because nobody's going to buy your book. Oh no! Um, absolutely not. If you not. them hard enough, um, <laughs> but I just—it's it, a very casual experience, you know. And it just sort of comes up. And what I've what I've found is, say, someone in my professional network, you know, say knows about it, and they'll talk to someone else who knows me, and then they'll call me and want to know about it. So, which is how a network works. That's how they all work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, very very soft sell, especially your professional network. Um, personal network you can be a little bit firmer um, but I literally don't try and sell any books to any of them um, I just talk about it and yep. it's something that I do and if they're interested they can then buy it you know so um, and that's yeah. worked really well for me it's a very casual casual experience like I said before yep. um, no hard sell no nothing it's just if they're interested that's cool if they're not they're not because and it comes back to my philosophy when I first started publishing back in March last year was I actually expected to sell zero books, but I didn't actually worry about it because I'm not worried about making tons of money because, no. it, you know, to become part in the 10% of authors earning good money is pretty well not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, although we'd all like it to happen. Um, but the fact is that I published books. If people bought them, that was great, but it was about me publishing, which is yeah. why I independently published to begin with. So yeah. that may be where I sort of get my sort of softer sell from um, is because, you know, I don't need, because I've got a job and I don't need to earn money from my writing to feed yeah. myself. Yeah, no, I get that. it would be bad if I did. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd be very, very thin, very thin. Um, so, yeah, because yeah. Nathan, looking at, you know, once you've got your book and deciding where you're going to publish it, I mean, I personally am still exclusive on, on Amazon, which I find frustrating yeah. Um, you know, and when I read your answers, you were saying that you actually regret not moving away from being exclusive on Amazon earlier and branching yep. out to places like Smashwords and Drafter Digital, Apple, Kobo, etc. And I've yeah, looked into it myself and I'm, I'm so overwhelmed that I don't know where to start. Um, so yep. I guess if you could sort of tell us, you know, who you've gone with and why and was the process easy or was it quite difficult? Yeah, so I, I started off with Amazon, which is pretty common. They're obviously the biggest platform and probably easy, one, of the, one of the easiest platforms to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and they supply everything for you. It's great. Yes. Um, so, and that's good for a period of time until I found people asking me whether I my books were available on Apple or whether they were available through Kobo um, and some of the other providers as well because there are completely anti-Amazon people in this world who refused to use Amazon, but they wanted to read my books. And it took me a while to That's come around interesting, isn't it? off Amazon. Yeah, mm. very interesting. So um, it's like me personally, I hardly ever buy a book off Amazon because I use my iPad. So I buy, I get them off Apple Books yep. because I can't buy a book on my iPad off Amazon. 
So why would I, why would I go through Amazon? Uh, so I have to use a computer to do it. So um, it's, I suppose part of it is making it easier for your readers to actually access your material. Yes. So, and then I had a look at Smashwords, Smashwords and Draft to Digital. Um, and that was only in the last probably two months. And then I decided that I'd go with Drive to Digital. Either or, it doesn't really matter. Okay. Um, they sell to the same houses. Um, and it's the same basic process um, of the two. Um, did a little bit of research on Google and then figured I'd just give it a go. Uh, and it takes, it's really, really quick. It's actually probably faster than Amazon because they actually don't demand anything off you. Um, so you set your own formatting, you set your own everything. Yep. Uh, and you just upload the file with your cover art and you know, oh, that sort of stuff. Sorry, Nathan. So I just My two puppies have just ran through the room <laughs> like a couple of maniacs. Hopefully they quieten down. Sorry. That's okay. My three are hidden away. I have the door closed so they won't disturb us. Yes, I very um, rarely get through a recording without something. I do apologise. <laughs> yeah, carry on. It's very nice. It's nice to have in the background. Um, so, yeah, so, so I obviously drafted digital my experience. So it was very easy. You just upload the Word document, you upload your cover art, um, you choose categories you want it to look at, you know, those sort of things, choose a price, no different really to what Amazon um, asks of you, except there's no formatting rules. Um, you can choose different styles and stuff in there as well. And okay. literally just upload it. Um, and within a week, it's pretty well on every platform that you need it on. Okay, because I, I actually so, looked into Smashwords and I was so overwhelmed. I thought it just looks too hard. Um, have you had an no, experience with really that? it's really easy. It's easy. Not with okay. Smashwords, but I think they're pretty well the same, realistically. Uh, Drafts to Digital, I think, is a bigger carrier than Smashwords, I think, off the top of my head. Um, but either way, it doesn't really matter. Um, like my, I write my manuscripts to the Amazon format anyway. Um, so my margins and indents and everything are formatted for Amazon. Okay. Uh, so it looks roughly the same. Although when I upload it to Draft to Digital, it doesn't look quite as good as the Amazon platform. Um, but it doesn't really matter because it's an ebook. So people yep. will change the size of it as soon as they get it onto their tablet. So, okay. Um, Interesting. So, yeah. So realistically, it took, I reckon, with a bit of fiddling around, a little bit of formatting change to make myself a little bit happier with it. Um, I reckon an hour of my time per book. And then when a week after that, they are all ready. So, and Raven's Eyes just come ready now because I did that one a little bit slower. Um, okay. So now, and I suppose now it just expands my readership. So if somebody is exclusively only using, say, Kobo, which some people do, um, my book can be found on Kobo now. Yeah. Um, and same yeah. with Apple. Yeah, because I'm finding, I mean, obviously I've currently got my books available in um, Kindle Unlimited on Amazon, which obviously, yeah. you know, makes your ebook exclusive to Amazon. And exactly. I haven't had any pages read in over six months. You know, so I'm thinking yeah, so, it's, it's not worth it. I need to start branching out. Yeah, and I still look at that as well. Like I, like I sell, I don't know, at a rough guess, eight books a month, like roughly, and that's yep. a bit of KU plus hard copy or soft. Um, so, and I looked at it and I went, well, if I'm used up, if I've already used up all the readers on Amazon, you know that we're roughly interested in it because all books have a lifespan. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, going from those initial high sales tailing down to you know the odd one, um, which is that natural sort of cycle. I think is like, well, why don't I just put it on more platforms and you know appeal to other readers who do not look at Amazon? Yeah, um, okay. And sort of have a look at that, but it's only sort of obviously I've only sort of started that in the last sort of month a bit, month and a bit. Um, so I'm yet to sort of see how that sort of pans out. So yeah, that's why I wanted to ask right. you because you said it was only recent. Mm -hmm. So 
well, at least yeah. you've given me, you know, the courage now to, <laughs> to try and give it a go and yeah, see if definitely. I can expand and, yeah, and, and get my really book in more hard. places. Okay. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not hard. You just have to, you just follow the bouncing ball. And there's actually less bouncing balls, say, for did Draft the Digital than there is for Amazon. Okay. Um, and it's really up to you. You just, it's your formatting, it's your everything. Yeah, and they'll okay. do some little bit of styling for you uh, yep. if you want to. Yeah. Uh, and that's about it. And then it's good to go. Yep. You know, they've got a nice sale, nice sort of dashboard sales, which covers all of the platforms. You don't have to look at individual platforms. Um, oh, gee, that's, in, so that's good. That makes it easier. It's quite easy, yeah. And if you yeah. want to, you can, if you never published on Amazon, you can still publish on Amazon through Draft Digital Smashword. Oh, so they're like an agitator. Okay. Okay. And it goes into libraries as well. So a library can buy your books, um, which is quite good to know. Yeah, so it absolutely. expands it even into that sort of area. So, um, yeah, because obviously when yeah, you're so just published on Amazon, okay. that makes it hard, you know, for libraries. And, yeah, yeah, you can't, yeah, to sort of break into getting into your book into a library is almost impossible. So makes it very hard. But it is. Yeah. Um, and it is on pretty well impossible. So um, so it just adds that sort of, you know, just it expands your um, your readership and a more potential readership, which is what you're trying to do really. Yeah. It's like using social media. You're trying to expand your readership, which hopefully then will turn into sales or interest. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you would do the same thing for a platform to um, to sell your work because you've done a lot of hard work to sell it. So, so yeah. lots of people. Yeah, because Nathan, you, you obviously decided you know, to self-publish your, your first three books. Did you ever query mm-hmm. or did you always plan on going straight to self-publishing? Yeah, so I queried many years ago, back in a uh, long time ago now, probably the early 2000s. Uh, when I first tried it, published my first two novels I wrote um, and wasn't very successful. And well, wasn't, well, even though I got sort of reasonably positive responses, no one was willing to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And I sort of learned from that and I thought, yeah, maybe this isn't for me. And then it, then it you know, created a quite long, a long time of just me writing because really it is about my pleasure because um, I really enjoy writing. I love just sitting and writing and creating worlds and characters and whatever else I'm creating. So yeah. it brings me large amounts of enjoyment. Yeah, um, me too. So, yeah, that's right. And that's, I think that's how it should be. Um, so, and then that's when I realised that I could publish it independently and that I didn't need to go through the query. Plus, I also wanted to learn more about publishing it. You know, doing it independently gave me that and sort of the bits I don't like about it and the bits I do like about it. Yeah. Um, and the fact is nothing to be scared of just independently published because there are some very, very successful independently published authors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in this world. So, and gone are the days where you had to have an agent, gone are the days where you have, you have beheld to a publishing house for everything Yeah. because the power sits with the author now. And yeah, you don't have to you, get past you the choose. gatekeepers. The no, gatekeepers. not at all. Yeah. Yep. And that's right. So because the gatekeeper is you. And if you think it's good enough, publish it. Um, yep. If you don't think it's good enough, keep working on it until you think it is and then publish it. Yeah, okay. Um, but it's just that realisation that independently publishing is hard, is easy enough to do, uh, but is much harder to get a sale because you yes. don't have the powerhouse of a publishing house's um, like advertising you know, arm behind you. Um, yep. You have to do everything yourself. And that's, that's fine as well because it helps you learn. Yeah, um, it's interesting because even if you're traditionally published now, you still have to do a lot of the heavy lifting with marketing your own book anyway, yeah, even if you're traditionally cool. published. So, and I think because marketing electronically has become so easy, yeah. um, so the the author can take it all on. You know, I think you don't just write books anymore. You you have to do social media, you have to do 
all the other bits and pieces because it's just part of the game now. It's a business, isn't it? It's a it's a business. Writing is a business. I actually approach my writing as a business. My publishing yep. is a business. So, uh, and I have a business name which is you know Nathan Best Publishing. So that mm-hmm. everything sits under. So I create a business for it, and I approach it as a business. So I thought I'd probably use my MBA a little, um, and actually use some of the things I learned in it. Um, and uh, and yes, yeah, so I use some of those principles as part of you know the experience of independently publishing because it is literally a business. And a friend of mine who's an artist, she's a visual artist. She teaches um, business for artists, and um, wow. she does a lot of uh, a lot of teaching now. So she went to really that business line and teaches artists how to make money out of their their art by actually treating it like a business, not a pass, not a something you do on weekends. Yeah, not not a hobby. You know, yeah. No, and yeah. if you want to write as a hobby, that's fine. You can still publish like that. And if yeah. you don't sell any books, it doesn't really matter. Who cares? Um, because as long as you're happy, that's all that actually matters. And yeah. that's why I write like that. Because so, it's interesting that's you why said I that. I chose to hybrid. Yeah, no, fair enough. Because you said that you enjoy most things about the publishing, you know, process and the publishing journey. Yeah. But you did say yeah. that you editing <laughs> is the thing you edit. don't like. <laughs> I do. I hate editing. It yes. drives me mental. So yeah. normally I will draft. I will do a redraft. I will do a proof, and then that's about it for me. Because um, my redrafts are literally proper full redrafts of the entire novel. Um, and they pick up all errors, you know, not so much errors, you know, plot holes, any of those sort of things, they're corrected in that in that second, re- in that redraft, um, which I might start the day after I finish the draft. Depends how much time I have. And, and the proof is me just reading it, just having a read yeah. uh, and fixing up little bits and pieces. And then I have my own, own editor, um, who's a friend of mine. So I'm on my second editor now. Uh, my first mm-hmm. one was very good. She couldn't keep doing it for me um because of work so um another friend of mine said she would do it so i was like okay that's cool so and then after sort of those the the draft manuscript the redraft and a proof i'll send it to her okay um and she will just go and and give it a good proof for me um find out whether i've forgotten something on page two that i suddenly now invented on page 200 um you know those sort of things for me which obviously everybody does um (laughs) and then give it back to me and yep. then I will then go through again and redraft it again uh, yep. with her advice. And um, and then it goes out to my beta readers. Yep. And then I have every, anywhere from two beta readers, three beta readers, up to my current six, because my advisors are reading the Damien Hunter series currently for, okay. for uh, accuracy. Excellent. Because I wanted it to be very accurate. Yep. Uh, in combat and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, so that's basically my flex. I do not like editing. I really don't. It drives me mental. Yeah, look, um, I, I'm with you. I don't like it either. I think it's the worst. No. The worst. I totally agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Now, yeah, I have makes to... a pleasurable thing a grind. Oh, absolutely. Now, yeah. I have to ask you, right, so a lot of authors that I've, friends that I've spoken to, um, we're all on a different budget, right, depending on how much we can spend mm-hmm. to publish our book. So, you know, whether we decide to spend money on cover design, uh, formatting, editing, or all of the above, or, or none of it, you know, if you're on a tight mm-hmm. budget, what would you say is the best money that you've spent publishing your books and you would advise people to spend money on? Cover design. Cover design. Okay. Yep. So I have a graphic art company in Melbourne who do all my covers. Um, I like very vibrant colours. If you've seen any of the covers of my three books, yes, um, you will see they're quite a vibrant cover. Um, 
and they're, the company's called The Illustrators. They do excellent work for me. Um, and it's not actually that expensive. Like really, once you've got a good rapport, they work with you really, really well. Um, and you give them a rough idea of the, uh, like you can choose your images, you can do whatever you want, or they can do it. Um, you give them a rough sort of rough idea of what the story's about. They have a think about it and then they create your cover for you. Um, send you a couple of proofs, have a chat about it on the phone. Very, very good company to work with. Um, and I've sort of been lucky. I've had my editors don't require payment, but they do require wine and flowers and any other sort of thing that they require. So I'm more than happy to pay for those. Obviously. And a gift voucher for um, a massage and any of those things. Trust me, yes. any of okay. it because they do because they are so valuable to me. My editors, oh, absolutely definitely. amazing. Um, so I then spend that money on either purchasing hard copies for myself for sale, um, mm-hmm. and but ma- the main thing is into the cover because we all know the you know the old saying you don't judge a book judge a book by its cover but you pretty well do yeah. um if, if it's a good catchy cover then it will attract a reader's attention attract my attention um so definitely cover design okay. and you work you just you find i just cast around for an australian company who would do it for me and because I was looking for an Australian company, I didn't worry about looking for a company on the internet that would have been half the price. Um, I wanted an Australian company. And it's only a couple hundred bucks. It's not that big a deal. And can I so, ask you, Nathan, did you, because um, I talked, when I had uh, recorded the first episode with my friend Tamara, I told her about, mm-hmm. I actually got scammed by a company a couple of years ago when I was first starting out about a logo for my website. So oh, did you actually go. look at reviews and things before you went with the cover design company or did you yeah, talk? Yeah, so I actually did. And the, the illustrators do a lot of book covers. So I had a bit of a cast around. I just sent them an email, just querying them realistically. Um, and the director of the company, Andrew Hall, gave me a call. Um, and we got on actually really, really well. He was very, very honest. Um, he was actually really honest about writing in general. And, and independently publishing in general. So it's actually quite good. Mm. Um, you know, and he sort of was more than happy to burst a bubble if I sort of have it that I would be in the top 10% of earning authors in about three minutes, um, which I already decided obviously wasn't going to be. So I didn't have to worry about that. But he was just, he was, he offered a very good experience. And I work, I've, and this is how I do most things in life. So I work with people I trust. Yes, so, of course. And you build the rapport and you build the trust. Um, and that's who I work with. I don't work with anybody, especially for, say, writing, that I do not trust and do not have a rapport with. Um, so part of getting his company on board was multiple phone calls, multiple emails before we actually did anything. And he was more okay. than happy to do that. Because um, he won, I suppose he's investing in a new client, and I've got all three of my books done through him. Um, and he's been brilliant. The entire time and his turnaround is amazingly fast you know yeah. he'll turn me turn around a book cover for me in about 24 hours you know which is really good yeah. um and yeah so but yeah book covers definitely yeah look that that's reassuring because there's probably a lot of listeners out there who are like me you know thinking um can I trust this company? You know, like I, I was once bitten twice shy, you know, so just yep. going through that process of building a rapport and, and you may be talking to other people that have used the same company, um, mm. I think gives people a lot of reassurance if they're not sure where to go or who to contact. Cause I, yeah, I was definitely, definitely mm. I was definitely, you know, once bitten twice shy. So I'm very mm. wary now. 
But if someone was to ask me, yeah, sorry, if someone was to ask me what the best money I've spent is, I'd have to say formatting, (laughs) formatting your paperback. Because I I cannot do that. I think you need, you know, to be a rocket scientist to be able to work that out. So that's the best. I've got someone who's actually a mate on Twitter who does my formatting for me. um, And I pay him and it's it's worth its weight in gold because I just cannot get my head around it at all. And that's what you do. It's like, I can't do cover design. You know, I can't even draw a stick figure straight, but I can write. Um, yes. <laughs> so that's why basically it's like a business. You outsource the stuff you can't do. Exactly. Um, exactly. So that's what you do. So, yeah, definitely. And I have to ask um, you, have you spent hmm. money on advertising and has it been successful, like Anna Amazon or Facebook? Uh, Amazon only. Um, and it was not particularly successful for the amount of money they charged me. So I actually don't bother anymore. And you know what? It hasn't affected my sales at all. So I sold when it when it was going through Amazon advertising, I sold in a, you know, if you wanted to sort of level it up, very, very low equitable sales for the money they were charging me to advertise. So um, so I just let it run out and did a bit of an experiment because I could do that because I'm independently published. Um, and I still sold the same amount of books I did before I before I advertised with them. So um, so I just stopped doing it and I just don't worry about it anymore. So I've never done Facebook advertising, I don't see any value in it. Um, because you're just randomly hitting a whole on Facebook of people on Facebook who probably aren't that interested in getting an ad from you. Um, so I literally don't advertise anymore, mm. you know, realistically. Um, people just sort of come across it or it goes word of mouth or, you know, those sort of things. Or they see, you know, on Facebook or Instagram or, you know, those sort of things. So, Did you want to hear my awful experience um, in regard yeah. to Facebook advertising? Yeah, so well, you have to have I've... them as an author, so yes. <laughs> So the very first time I thought I'll do a Facebook ad, um, my ad had been up there for a couple of hours and I had some random message come through from some guy, which was a picture of a great big pile of horse shit, horse turd. (laughs) And I thought, stupid me, like half asleep, hadn't had my coffee thinking, what the hell is this? So I messaged him just with a question mark and he says, well, you decided to pay Facebook to crap on my page, so I'm crapping on yours. And so that put me off ever okay. advertising on Facebook again. So yeah, <laughs> that was and interesting. I can sort of, <laughs> and I can sort of understand that because you look at, you know, I look at the, say, the ads that turn up on my Facebook feed and it's like, yes. I have no interest in a camper trailer, none. But I get heaps of those ads, you know, those sort of things. And it's like, all you're doing is cluttering up my news feed. So, and I suppose, even though I've never had that experience, which is sort of pretty cool, really. Yeah, it's um, interesting. I thought I'd tell you that story. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, that's right. And I sort of, it's, you sort of, have you wasted your money? You know, what did Facebook give you for your the money you paid? You know, which was probably nothing. Nothing. I didn't um, even see one in, download, one sale, one nah. nothing the whole time the ad was running. So I've never done it again. Yeah. So. No. And for some people, it would work, most definitely. Yeah. Um, yep. But it doesn't work for me. So... Yeah. Uh, and that might be because my nobody really knows my name very well. You know, exactly. as, a, as an author, yeah. I'm not overly well known. So you will get more sales the more well known you are, which is basically marketing. Yeah, so, and, and, and getting more yeah. books out there. You know, we all know the more books you yeah. get out there, the more traction you're going to get. So we just need to keep writing and keep yeah. getting our work out there, basically. And that's exactly what you have to do. You just basically you have to keep writing. And, yes. you know, everyone has more than one book in them. Like there's that old saying that everyone has at least one book. Everyone's got more than one book. Um, and if you want to write, if you want to be an author, just keep writing. Just keep doing it. Yeah, um, and the absolutely. more products you have, like everything else in this world, the more products you have, 
someone just needs to see one of your books and they'll go, I wonder if they have something else. Yeah. And if you've got 10 books for them to choose from, they might buy 10 of your books, yeah. uh, which would be great. Absolutely. So, because yeah. like we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, um, where you distribute your book, you know, are you going to self-publish, traditionally publish? Um, how do I market my book? But if, if I sat down a brand new author in front of you now writing their very first book and they said mm -hmm. to you, Nathan, what advice would you give me? Where would you start? What advice would you Except give for the dogs in the background. I know. He's so naughty. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm going to kill him. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so basically, I suppose I would block it down initially to my own experience of, of being an author. So it's all about enjoying yourself. You have to enjoy the journey of being an author and a writer mm -hmm. um, because to me, they're, inter they're intertwined. Just like book and novel, I always use the term novel. I never use the term book very often. Okay. Uh, because that's just what that's just what I say. Um, but basically, it is about enjoy the experience and the journey of writing because you're creating something. Even if somebody doesn't really read it or somebody thinks it's a bestseller writer, it makes no difference. It's about how you feel during writing. Um, because writing makes me extremely happy. Me too. Um, yeah. and, and very excited. You know, maybe because I've listened to very fast heavy metal. Um, you know, that sort of helps me along as well. And, and, and I need complete silence. So there you go. We're the complete opposite. I need complete I silence to sit and write. Isn't yep. that funny? I can, I can actually write in silence, but I don't mm -hmm. do it. It's okay. very rare. Um, and I suppose also don't, don't stress about anything. Just write. You know, and don't sit there and go, your, per, your first draft have to be perfect. Because if you, lift, if you sort of take the advice so that Matthew Riley has kicked around, is basically draft, then redraft, then redraft, then redraft, and redraft until you think it's perfect, and then try and give it to an all, uh, you know, publishing house or you know, independently published. So, um, and Matthew Rowley and it like is pretty amazing for what his journey has been from being an independently published author to where he is these days. So yeah, um, definitely so he is to be listened to. I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah. Also, you're not going to if you if you write your first novel, it's well not going to be perfect. Because writing is an art, and so you have to allow yourself to grow. So the more you write, the better you get. Oh, and totally the more experience agree. you get. And creating, and soon you'll be writing that you don't have potholes anymore because you've already fixed all that up prior because you know when to find them and what you do. Um, you know, write to, write to your own pace, your own everything. You know, don't, don't rush anything. You know, don't underwrite either. Don't sit there and go, I don't feel like writing today because I'm a very disciplined writer. Mm -hmm. um, so I do have days where I don't want to write, but I still write regardless um, because I have that high levels of discipline. That's why I write 95,000 word novels in, in 28 days, which is what I wrote Best of the Fog in, um, yeah. just with massive levels of, of discipline. Um, and um, and allow, basically allow yourself to learn through the entire experience from literally drafting all the way to independently publishing or going through publishing us, either or learn it and it always have the expectation that it might not go right because yes. then you can deal with that disappointment and then move on. But if you put all your eggs in one basket, someone's going to say no, it'll be the first person you write to. And if you then tip that out, then you'll probably never go back to it again. Yeah. So you just have to realize that you will fail. Yes. And it's not that big a deal because who really cares? In the biggest scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Because if it's good enough, go to Amazon and independently publish. Go to Drafts to Digital. Who cares? 
Yeah, because it's sad to think of all the authors out there that, you know, may have had a bad experience or been shut down or been rejected and they just think they put that away in the drawer and they never write ever again and that manuscript never sees a lot of day. I think that's really sad. That's right. And they're like some of the best books, sorry, best novels ever written have never been published. They're still sitting in somebody's drawer because they had that bad experience, I feel. And um, But nowadays, nowadays it's just so easy. If a publishing house rejects you, who cares? Just go and jump on Amazon, whack it up there, and you are a published author. Yes. And I've... I've always I've, I find it very frustrating. The the prejudice was still kicks around for independent publishing versus the publishing house, and the fact that people think independent publicly published authors are, are lower when you're actually you're not. You've just taken a different line, um, which is changing though. That's actually quite good. Yeah, um, and that's what you say to a new author as well. Like don't you don't have to be published for a publishing house. It, it would be nice, but it's it's not the be all and end all because you know say if a publishing house gives you a contract. They pick up your book and they publish it and it doesn't sell. It's no different to whether you independently published it and it didn't sell. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And because publishing houses lose a lot of money. Of they course make they money do. out of very small amount of authors. So a lot of the people they pick up, they don't make any money out of. No, because if they pick up a new unknown author, it's it's you know, it's yeah. a huge gamble, isn't it? Very much and they expect yeah. to lose money on you. Until yes. your name is known, like you could have the most amazing, amazing manuscript, um, but if no one knows who you are, it's a hard sell for them. Until yes. it picks up and you know it starts to really run, and then people get to know your name and they'll buy it. Um, well, I suppose also a bit of advice is have a have a budget, treat it like a business from the start, um, and format everything from the start. If you use Microsoft Word or whatever you use, find out whatever platform you want to use. I say Amazon and look at their formatting guide and set word up from the start to be formatted how you whatever platform you want to use because mm-hmm. there's nothing worse than having to go back and reformat everything later yes um, <laughs> so you just set everything up you know because yep. it makes it just so much easier for you yep. um and i guess you, you learn know, that and, as you go along don't you think last time yeah. i didn't do that i'll make my life easier and this time i'll yeah i'll set it up from the start so you learn that as you yeah. go along the mistakes that you True. make along the way most definitely yeah and you have to make mistakes so go and make them because it doesn't really matter because that's how you learn in normal life but because authors that can be quite precious i am i am precious um yep. in certain ways um because it's like it's like a visual artist they're precious too because it's so much of you in what you've created that you do get a little bit sensitive to criticism sensitive to failure but you have to push through because if you, it is a business and you want it to sell yes um uh, so it's part of that as well as you lean on your friends um, and they will help you out. You will help them out. Everything, that's how this all works. It's a big network, a big community. Um, but also don't harass everybody. You know, when you write your first novel, it's the most amazing thing on earth. And it is it's amazing and the most awesome feeling, but not everyone wants to hear about it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> because that's Literally right. Because you're so all. excited about it. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. It is. But they don't want to, they don't want to listen to it. You know, they're happy that you've done it. And that's cool. And that's where you should lead the conversation and move on to someone who maybe wants to talk a bit more in depth, but yes. don't get despondent. If not, everyone wants to hear about your, you know, your novel that you've written um, yeah. because not everyone reads and not everyone reads what you've written. You that's know, right. say, like say Raven's Eye for me, military sci-fi, not this, like people don't all read military sci-fi at all. Um, it is a, just a certain type of person who reads that book. So yes. There's millions of other people who wouldn't give me the time of day if I was talking about Raven's Eye to them at all. 
Yes. Um, so um, you just have to have that realisation, you know, and temper back your sensitivities and deal with the, I suppose, look at the reality of it all uh, and deal with failure. We deal with failure every day in life. Of course so, we do. You know, being an author is no different. It just hurts a bit more. But you just, you know, grow a thicker skin like we all do for many things. Yeah, um, and, and I think having author friends is so important because other people yeah. in your life just can't under, begin to understand the frustrations and the things that we go through, but other writers can yeah. definitely understand. Oh, definitely. Like my, my other half watches me and the amount of hours and time I pour in, you know, to a novel. So another friend of mine, a visual artist who, um, who does really teaching these days, um, I'm having a conversation with her, the difference between an author and a visual artist. And because she doesn't move in the author, author sphere because she doesn't write. Um, yes. So it's sort of, it's new to her. So we talk about it. And I said, it takes me, because I'm such a stats orientated person, um, about 100 hours from draft to proof. That's basically how long it takes me for about an 85,000 word, word novel. Okay. Um, a visual artist, spends, I don't know, hour and a half, two hours doing a painting, good, good, done. And they expect to sell it for two and a half grand. And I'm expecting to sell my book for a dollar US. And That's, the hours I've do never not equate to way. each other. Yeah, very yeah, interesting. So the hours don't equate um, at all. So even though I'm not, you know, rubbishing visual artists because they do great work and some take do. a lot longer than two hours, obviously, <laughs> um, for any of those who are listening, you know, I'm not trying to offend you. Um, but the... <laughs> The amount of work, is, it's just a different thing because novels, you know, you don't, they, you've got to sell high volume to make any money at all, whereas a visual artist sells one piece for high volume for the, to get that same amount of money. So, yeah. um, so it is a very different way of creation, of creating because writing, unless you're a very fast type like me, about 1,500 words an hour, um, it takes a long time. Oh, absolutely. You know, so, I'd go mental if I could only type 100 words an hour, like an hour. I don't know. I couldn't get anything done. Um, so I'm very, very lucky. I was taught to touch type when I was young. Um, yeah. And, you know, if I'm not, if you know, I type sometimes faster than that, like occasionally I type at 3,000 words an hour um, if I'm really in a nice groove. Um, but it's very tiring. So I only write for two hours a day. Yeah, yeah fair um, sometimes, enough. Sometimes up to five. Um, if I've got a day off and I've got nothing on, I might write five hours, but I'm completely buggered at the end of five hours um, because I might have smashed out like 15,000 words, 20,000 words in a day. Um, so I'm completely wrecked, completely wrecked. Um, but I average, you know, sort of around that 1,500 an hour. So in my two hours, I write 3,000, 4,000 words a day, so, which is perfect. Um, so, and you got to, and I consistently do that. And that's also, I suppose, when you author, you got to be consistent. Um, and for me, be structured and disciplined in what you do. Yeah. Because uh, that's how I, it works for me. So that would be my advice, obviously. Um, obviously, everyone has their own style. Yeah. Um, but if you want to write a book, write a book. Just write it. Yeah. Just you get know, it done. That's all there get, is get to it. Down. Just get it done. Yeah. yeah. And you can flap around with it all you want. But if you're not writing, you're not writing. That's all there is to it. You yeah. Know, it's like you can sit in a coffee shop and go, I'm an author. But if you haven't written anything in four years, you're not actually an author anymore. You're just someone who talks about doing it. So I'm very much a doer. Yes. Um, So if you're an author, you write all the time. And that's what you do because you enjoy it. Um, So yes, and trust me, most of my life is built exactly like that. 
So, well, I, I think um, you've given people out there a, a plethora of advice there, Nathan. I think that's, hopefully, that's <laughs> and that's just and that is just my experience. You know, really is. That's just what I've learned. You know, over I suppose forty years, and then realistically, only in the last what fifteen months of seeing independently publishing and yeah. deciding to move into that next phase and the journey of I would like to be published now. Um, and I've actually achieved that, that goal. Yeah, uh, good I achieved on you. that goal once once my first novel burned September. Once it was published, I had achieved my goal already. So the other stuff I want to be published is adding to that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, sort of fleshing out that experience. So yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a great experience. It's good fun. I quite enjoy it. And, Nathan, where where can people find you online? Um, so... I have my website, which is uh, Nathan, NathanBestAuthor.com. Um, yep. So I use that. I'm a, I'm a very factual orientated person. Hello, dogs oh, again. I am so sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's He's okay. never that's this bad. I do apologise. He's just that's terrible okay. no tonight. Um, I, like, I'm not, I don't really enjoy blogging or anything like that, so I use that. My website is like basically a, flat, a factual media um, about what is going on, or what I've, I'll write a blog on the background to, I like say, Burn September or anything I've written like that, or like say in Damien Hunter's Damien Hunter series Battleborn, I'll talk about what weaponry I've used. Um, but blogging is not really my thing. Um, I do it because it's just part of the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find me there. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. So okay. my professional. Um, my professional profile has obviously my normal everyday life and also my writing life in there as well. Um, not so much though. Uh, obviously Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and it's pretty well, so pretty well I cover the major sort of platforms that people use. Um, and yeah, so I post probably the most on Instagram realistically and Facebook. Um, whereas my website, I'll probably post, you know, I'll put a blog on maybe every couple of months realistically. Um, depending where the urge takes me, because it is really not something I'm really into, um, because I'm too busy writing, you know. So yeah, um, so that it takes me longer to write a blog than it does like a 200 word blog than hours of you know writing my novel. Okay. Um, so yeah, so it's not as you know sort of an interesting experience for me. Yeah, um, interesting. But yeah, but I know people who love to blog. Yeah, I do, and, and cool. I get quite a, yeah. a lot of interaction on my blog too. So yeah, I quite enjoy my great. writing my blog. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is brilliant, you know. So, and I, I'll have like anywhere from say seven people to you know 150, 200 people read a, a blog, depending on what the subject is. Um, that's like that's sort of cool, you know, because I've just shared that sort of fact across, and that's good to go. The Damien Hunter series is the most popular because yeah. um, a lot of special forces jump on and have a look at it because it's in that special forces community. Yeah, um, and a lot of veterans have a look at it as well. So that's very nice um, as well. Um, so, yeah, so that's basically where you can find me on those sort of platforms. So. Excellent. So yeah. um, I did ask you if you wanted to read um, an excerpt from one of your books and you're happy to do so. Sure. Yeah, and I'll I think you're going to you. read something from Raven's Eye. Is that correct? I will. So I'll read the start of Raven's Eye. So okay. um, I hope there's no children in the audience. Um, so it does start with a serial killer scene so I'll see how we go with you um, so this is the, this will be the first sort of two twenty bit chapters really two chapters I'll do for you um, of Raven's Eye um, which I published last year in August um, quite an enjoyable little tale so 
this is chapter one, and I use subheadings for everything. So if you don't know my format, mm -hmm. um, so subheading for this is Isgar flag. So I use character names as subheadings. Um, and by the way, Isgar flag is a zero color. So <clears throat> see how far the see how far the glints shine so cold as he stares down at you. See the hard, oh sharp edge of Father's blade. Would you like to feel his kiss? Invited Isgar quietly. His breath was sweet with desire as he twisted the blade of the knife so it caught the light flickering through the window. Isgar felt the woman buck and struggle against his muscular arm, which pushed her into the seat. A sharp popping sound snapped through the air as he drove the thick bladed knife through her skin and slides deeply into her abdomen. This is why it's not for kids, people. Um, her back arched and her eyes tried stretched wide. An involuntary shudder of horror tore through the woman's body. Easy there. Let father do its delicate work. I can't, I can't make it last very long and too soon it will be over. Too soon for me, but I suspect not quick enough for you, smoked Isgar as the first rivulet of blood flowed over his right arm where it pinned her to the seat. The metallic scent of blood, a beautiful aroma to his nose. He breathed a deep, satisfying lungful of the tainted air. A gurgling sound erupted, erupted deep inside the woman as blood rushed to escape her sliced stomach. Again, not for children. Uh, it surged up her throat and into her mouth, choking away any scream she might attempt to make. You must know that I'm a twisted and corrupted street, and I will lie to get what I ultimately want. I suspect you realise that now. Not one word of my mouth is true. Out of my mouth is true. Don't hold it against me, chuckled his gun. The whisper of the cruel blade cutting and slicing its way up the centre of the woman's body echoed, to, echoed in the tight, confined space of the car. Isgar grunted in annoyance as the blade came to a stop against the hard edge of her sternum. With renewed effort, he flipped, uh, fit, flipped father over to use the notched edge on his back and began to soar away at the ribs along the woman's right side. Blood fountained into, blood fountained into the air and sprayed the roof lining. Isgar began to laugh to himself. Confusion tinged with a look of abject distress washed over the woman's face as she bucked against Isgar one last time before collapsing along the length of the car's rear seat. As the woman ceased to be a part of this world, her body, blood streaming to the floor, relaxed into stillness. No more fight, no more life to give me, asked Isgar, smiling through a mask of blood. So chapter two, which is set one month later at 9.30 at night, and the character is Warrant Officer Robert Dunn. He's a chief loadmaster on a call sign on an aircraft, which is a big loadmaster um, cargo aircraft called Falcon 2, and it's an urban mixed cargo carrier. Get these filthy fucking things loaded, shouted Dunn at the, at the serviceman driving the forklift. He was 20 minutes behind schedule already, and it was not helped by the reluctance of everyone to load the cargo. The rear of the Globemaster was filled all the way forward on both sides with individual thick barred cages. Adding to the mission's complexity, Dunn needed to stack the cages at night with the cargo bay blacked out, and only the chief loadmaster of each aircraft permitted to oversee the process. Everyone was wearing night vision to achieve the goal, and it, and it slowed everything down. Shaking his head, Dunn gave the cage on the forklift a wide berth as he strode up to the driver. Before he could get there, the man started waving his arms around and yelling at him in frustration. I can't go any faster. These damn things don't want to be loaded, cried the man. His face was a mask of fear and worry as he peered at Dunn. Just get the cage into a slot and lock down. You only have six more to go. Are the other aircraft loaded? Uh, closing the ramps now. Yours is the last one, yelled the driver above the rising white of jet engines. Outside squatted a small fleet of Globemasters, all blacked out and menacing. The compressor blades of their jet engines slowly starting to spool up as they prepared for departure. 
Get a move on. The jet jockeys will be overhead soon, finished done as he stepped off the ramp and onto the apron. He looked around in disgust. He hated being the last one to get cargo stowed and the bird in the air. He would catch hell for it from the aircraft commander. There was no leeway for dropping my own schedule with this cargo, none at all. Strict parameters were, followed, were, were being enforced to ensure all staff followed the rules and that secrecy was maintained. The cargo was bound for a secured exercise area in the remote part of the Pacific Ocean. The, content, the contents had already been programmed for the live fire proof of concept, which would take place in the coming days. If the Russians found out what was going on, there would be hell to pay. If the rest of the world found out, there would be outrage. Dunn was not going to be the, be the cause of either of that happening. The driver nosed the forklift slowly down the centre of the aircraft, his sense of depth and distance severely limited by the night vision goggles he wore. So, siding with, with the cage needed to go and conscious of the chief load master's annoyance, he swung the forklift around to the left quickly. A loud clang echoed through the fuselage as the cage and the forklift crashed into the side of the one next to it. For a second, the driver stopped and caught his breath. Aside from a wrestler shifting in the cages around him, nothing happened. He twisted to look over his shoulder to see if anyone had noticed the noise or had seen what he had done. The cargo deck was empty. Dropping the cage into its slot and engaging the locks, the driver reversed out of the globe master and returned the hangar to collect the next one. So there's a scene break and we're back to Isgar. No, be quiet, shouted Isgar as he, sh as he crashed a massive fist into her face. The skin above her left eye split open. Isgar's fist tracked along and smashed her nose flat against her once pretty face. Her lips were shredded and the metal braces she wore on her top were shredded against the metal braces she wore on her top teeth. The girl's head snapped back, smashing into the win window of the driver's door. A shallow, a shallow moan rose from her throat as a young woman sagged against the, against the door. The, boy, the boyfriend was oops, start again. The boyfriend was sprawled against the front passenger seat, his face covered in blood. Every time he exhaled, a ragged, shattering sound, shuddering sound escaped, bringing a grimace to his girlfriend's face before Isgar had punched her. Exactly a month had passed since Isgar had sliced over the woman on the mountain road, his favourite hunting spot. Never before had his lust to kill returned so quickly, but with such ferocity. It was almost blinding. Better, much better. You just lie there and be quiet and let me do my work. You're such a nice young lad picking up a lonely man on this mountain road so late at night. Not best, not the best decision you've made. There are dangerous men on this road. Well, one really, and that's me. I'll be slow. I want to get inside your body and hear the snap and pop as you become a carcass. Uh, again, not for children. Uh, pronounced, uh, pronounced Isgar as he angled his body again into the passenger door to look at the boyfriend. The car was parked in a lay-by halfway up the twisting road. Ten minutes later, Isgar had flagged the couple down as he had stood watching for his next victim. He had been very pleased to see a clean couple in the car as it rolled to a stop near where he stood. If they, if they had introduced themselves, Isgar could not recall. He had discarded the memory just, just after they had spoken to him. Isgar had politely mentioned how good of a boy, good of it the boy was to let his girlfriend drive the car. Very modern, very modern way to be as he climbed into the back seat. Isgar happily engaged in the banter as they angled the car back onto the road and climbed higher into the mountain range. Without warning, Isgar had crashed the pommel of father into the back of the boy's head, stunning him and then forced the girl to pull over into the layby well off the road. As the boy swooned in his seat, Isgar had forced the girl to strip away her boyfriend's clothes and throw them from the car. Next, he indicated for her to do the same. Unable to struggle out of her jeans behind the steering wheel, she had slowly climbed out of the, big, out of the car and her clothes. 
tears streamed down her face and her hands trembled as she tried to cover herself. Smirking indifferently, Isgar motioned her back into the driver's seat, pulling the door closed behind her. The grin slipped from Isgar's face, Isgar's face as he lifted uh, father's blade and held it high. Flinching in fear, the boy snapped his eyes back and forth from Isgar to the knife. He did not move. This is father and he's going to carve through your body, lad. And then after a little fun, he will stuff out your life. Shall we, be where shall we begin? Asked Isgar, pointing, to the, pointing the tip of the blade at the boy's stomach, a questioning look on his face. He was pleased and amused that the lad had tried not to fight for his life or needed to be restrained. The boy, terrified, had pressed himself back into the passenger seat and rigidly looked at his guard. There was no worry of a rash act of chivalry from this one. Frozen in fear, the boy stared back, his Adam's apple bobbing up and down in his throat, releasing only a hiss of hot air. Hmm, sighed Isgar as he slowly pushed the knife against the naked flesh of the boy's abdomen. A, thr a thrill of pleasure thrummed through his body. Before he could plunge farther into the boy's stomach, Isgar caught a, a, hint of, a hint of motion in his right eye. He was halfway turned towards the girl when she launched herself at him. Frowning curiously for a moment, he watched her arms reaching out for his neck, hands open and searching. She never saw the glint of light reflecting off father as it rushed up and punched between her ribs, slicing into her heart. She gagged as crimson blood flicked her spittle, flipped her, flicked her spittle, spittle, sorry, uh, and she slumped back against the driver's door. Her body rolled off the seat to lie crumpled and lifeless in the footwell under the dash, her torso drenched in blood. Damn it, too fast, too fast. Damn it and damn you, girl, shouted Isgar, shaking a meaty fist at the girlfriend, girlfriend's body, flicking blood over the dash and screamed from the blade. In frustration and anger, he leaned over the boy and thumped his fist in the top of the lifeless girl's head. Breathing heavily, he hauled himself back up to look at the boy. Still, he had not moved, his wide, eye, wide terrified eyes following his gut. Isgar dragged him from the passenger seat through the gravel and off the lay-by, pulling, pulling open the rear door and dropping him into the rear seat. Leaning forward over his shuddering body, Isgar went to work. Fifteen minutes passed before the boy drew his last breath, his body sliced from pelvis to chin. The boy's corpse was laid open and the scent of blood and death filled the car, souring the air. Breathing deeply, Isgar wiped the blood from his face and looked down, to, down at his work. Is nodding, nodding, Isgar climbed over the centre console and dropped into the passenger seat and paused for a moment to slow his heart rate. He felt a stinging sense of sorrow, knowing once he had left the car, it would be all over. Isgar pushed open the passenger door and climbed out into the cool night. Reaching into the car, he grabbed a long coat he had seen when he had been sitting in the back of the car. It was a heavy Navy-style pea coat, one he had always wanted, and it was just the right size. The cleansing scent of pine, pine trees and dust filled his nose as he took a breath and grimaced in annoyance. He preferred the cloying scent of, of blood. Over the roof of the car and far away, he could see the twinkling lights which marked the small city of Bradfield and Bradfield to the east. Walton Air Base stretched out to the west before the land gave way to the ocean in the darkness beyond. This was his ground, high up here where the highway snaked its way from the mountain range down to the city. For 10 years, he had hunted and killed successfully. His Gary had been careful not to, be, not to take more than one a year. Now the urge, the need had rapidly grown. Never had he killed so boldly or so often. The police were looking for him, though, to be honest, they always had been. He enjoyed how they followed the false leads he left. Isgar had always been proud of his ability to leave little evidence behind. He considered himself a professional, but now, because he was having difficulty controlling himself, Isgar had killed four times in the past year. He was sure the police would pick up his trial now. Isgar was not ready to be caught yet. In time, but not yet. 
he had to reach his goal, which had formed solely in his mind as a child and then solidified when he reached his teens. It had taken him another 15 years to make his first kill, and ever since, he had chased the addictive adrenaline rush. Now turning 40, his girl was in the prime of his life and was committed to the killing, which brought him a deep sense of happiness. Taking a few few steps away from the car, he stopped and turned, stared back in the back at the dim outline of it, and he smiled. Turning away from the slaughterhouse of the car, his guy jogged quickly over the highway and up into the forest. He enjoyed the soft, spongy feel of the fallen pine, pine needles which carpeted the forest floor beneath his boots. As he surged, as he surged along, Isgar lifted his head to the sky, stopped and turned to look towards the ocean. Maybe there was time tonight for one more kill, one more spike of joy. Maybe just one more. The darkness swallowed Isgar's, sorry, the darkness swallowed Isgar's retreating figure and a steady peal of laughter streamed out behind him, chilling the night birds into silence. And that is the end of chapter two for Raven's Eye. So, like I said, not for children. Wow. Definitely R-rated. Definitely. <laughs> Very much so. It is. And that is actually my um, my editor actually cut out half of that because it was used to, well, I thought it was good. But um, yep. she helped improve that quite a lot. Um, so wow. it was actually a bit worse than that initially. So, yeah. And that is actually the most graphic his guy gets in the whole book is actually the start. Because that's how I create his character. Wow. Um, because now you know exactly what type of person Isgar is. And he's one of the main characters that carry through Raven's Eye. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's who he is. Well, I look forward um, to reading that now because I do have it on my Kindle, yeah. but I have to admit I haven't got to I it do yet. know that, which is but great. Yes. That's okay. And I will definitely give yeah. you a review when I read it. So, yeah, look, it's definitely yeah. something different for me. It's not something I would normally read. But, yeah, no. fascinating. Yeah, I look forward to it now. Excellent. Thank you yeah. for that. It is. That's okay. And it's actually like the feedback I've had for Raven's Eye that for the first actually start is difficult for people to get through, but then they realise why it's written like that. Because right. as they read through the rest of the book, they understand that that really sets Isgar up for carrying him through as a central character, one of the central characters for the whole book. So um, even my mother managed to get through it, although it took her a couple of goes. Right. Um, okay. And then she loved the rest of the book, which is sort of good. Um, Excellent. So, uh, yeah, so, so that's Raven's Eye for you. Excellent. Look, I just sure. can I just sincerely apologize for my naughty puppy. Like he he normally will have a little bit of a bark or <laughs> occasionally we hear something from him, but I don't know what is up his ass tonight. <laughs> He's obviously yeah, uh, got a bee in his bonnet about something. So I do apologize yeah. to the listeners and got, to you. I'm, I'm really sorry. Yeah, I've got three dogs, so I know exactly what it's like. Exactly. Yes, I know. So, but, but you wouldn't be without them. No, wonderful. I know. Yeah. And and look, Honey and Sid are the mascots for the podcast. So hopefully listeners will forgive him. He's a very cheeky boy. He's a very cheeky boy. He's just saying That's hello, right. obviously. That's exactly right. That's how it works. <laughs> but Nathan, look, thank you so much for joining me. It's, it's been you. interesting chatting all things publishing and, and marketing. And I think we can both agree that um, for everyone out there, there's no right or wrong way. I think we just need to do what mm -hmm. works for us and for our book. Would you agree? Most definitely. I do. I agree. What Do what suits you not suits other people. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So look, thank you again. And hopefully we've given listeners out there some things to consider. It's been, yep, it's hopefully. been fun having you. So um, yeah, thank you very, very much. And look, you're a really good mate. So it's been nice to catch up with you as well. So, and thank very you so much, much for joining it's been a while. me. Okay. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Nathan. And look, everyone, remember our catchphrase for the podcast. So when we write, we can't go wrong. And until next time, bye for now.